Episode 44. Here we are. 44 episodes into the Brew Theology Podcast. I want to thank you, the listeners, for your support, the fact that you listen. I love it. This has been a, a great I'm going to say blessing because it's been a blessing. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but to be quite honest, to gather together with a bunch of people every Thursday night in the pubs, to do that every week from 8 to 10 p.m. in Denver at a different microbrewery, and then to be able to kind of step back, to have this microcosm with a few friends on the side, and then to be able to share that with people across the nation— this has been fantastic. So I, I want to thank Dan for editing, Janelle, partner in crime, all of our moderators, all the people that write the content, and all the people who come in to, to do these interviews. So like for instance, tonight, we've got Miguel De La Torre. Dr. De La Torre is a leading liberation theologian. He's a professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at Iliff Seminary. We got Miguel before uh, before he went on his sabbatical back, I think that was about, uh, I don't know, August or September, episode eight, and he talks about liberation theology and para joder, about screwing with the system, also his theology of hopelessness, which you also will hear about on this episode, and a little bit more about his life is in that episode, so... Go give that episode a listen. On this episode 44, it's been, that, it's been months later. He's back. We got him right before he went to Cuba. And he talks to us on this episode about the U.S. immigration crisis and this theology, this ethics of a call to place to be in solidarity with those on the fringe. And this episode uh, speaks to the heart, speaks to the brain. It's historical. This is challenging. This is a great episode. And I would say of all of our episode, episodes that we have had, this one right here probably will strike the deepest chord, especially considering what's been going on in our nation the last couple of years. If you like this episode, my friends, please do us a great favor. Go over to iTunes and rate it, review it. We'd love a five-star rating, obviously. The reviews are nice. And then share that with your friends and your family. We're on Twitter. We're at Brew underscore Theology. We're also at Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology. The website, brewtheology.org, has all the ways in which you can be a partner, a sponsor. You and your friends can start a chapter this summer. This episode right now. Is going to, we're going to take a break for a little bit because we actually are going to take a break. We're going to have a new rhythm in the month of July. As you're listening right now, I'm actually in the state of Texas. I'll be there for 11 days, and then I'm going to spend five days in North Carolina at the Wild Goose Festival, followed by another week in Florida with my family. So all but seven days in the month of July, plus some time in June, I'm going to be gone from Denver. And so our Denver community is going to continue to thrive and do kind of fun stuff. Our friend Liz, which who you heard on the podcast many times, is going to be doing different socials, activities, uh, even visiting different congregations and religions on Sunday. She's got a great thing going. So if you're in Denver or around Denver, uh, you can join us on the Meetup page, and we'll send out emails. You'll get emails from Liz during the summer about that. And uh, if you want to keep drinking beer with us, uh, there's plenty of people in the Denver community who love to drink beer and just love to talk. So even though we're not doing our content in the month of July... And we will be back in the month of August. Believe me for that. Yes, we will. There's still ways in which everybody can connect. So grab a beer with somebody. Talk some theology. Talk to the heart. Talk to the head. Talk to it all. Because people, honestly, at the end of the day, they want to talk. They want to connect. This episode is brought to you by the one and the only Barrels Beer Company here in Denver, Colorado. We're drinking three of their brews tonight. One of them is their IPA. So good. The other one is the IPL, which is a lager. Man, this is this is a 
that this lager is so refreshing, especially because it's been so hot in Denver. I love it. And then we have a sour that we're drinking from them tonight as well. So thank you, Barrels Beer Company. They are going to be at Theology Beer Camp with us in August when we bring in Peter Rollins and Trip Fuller. That's August 18th and 19th. You can get your tickets over at TheologyBeerCamp.com. Share that online with your friends as well. It's going to be in the Platte Park neighborhood. Twelve different craft breweries coming together. Adelita's Cocina y Cantina is bringing tacos. Nixon's Coffee is bringing some coffee. And we'll have some other fun things on the side as well on that awesome weekend in Denver. All right, Mile High friends and friends across this nation and globe, peace. So before we get into the politics and the borders and everything that we're going to get into tonight, can you just tell us the story about Sandra Lopez and your interaction with her? I think it's very important that we always remember that we're talking about human lives here, people of flesh and blood, people who are suffering and people who are dying. Sandra is an example of this. I met Sandra one month after she came out of jail. She was, at the time, 21 years old. Unbelievable story. She came to this country when she was a toddler, grew up thinking she was an American citizen. When it came time to go to high school, she wanted to study medicine and become a nurse. Not having a social security number, she was unable to do so. So she was only able to get a job um, at a butchery, working with meat and, and, and working at, you know, at a store. A friend asked her to mail a package and gave her $100 for the postage. She went and told her she could keep the change, which was like about 17 bucks. She went to the post office, mailed a package, and when she left, she was stopped by the police. Apparently, in the package was marijuana, uh, you know, drug substance. Um, and she was arrested for not only trafficking, but making a profit to $17 that she got in change. She had no idea what was in the package. She did a very stupid thing. She's the first one to admit it. It was a mistake. But because of it, when they ran her information, they found out that she was undocumented. Um, the judge told her she had what three, you know, asked her three questions. Um, are you a U.S. citizen? No. Are you married to one or have children that are U.S. citizens? She said no. Are your parents U.S. citizens? She said no, even though her father, her foster father, was a U.S. citizen. And if she would have said yes, she could have stayed. But she said no, thinking of her biological father. Because of that, she got deported. She was dropped off in Mexico in the middle of the night. Couldn't speak Spanish, even though she was born there. She, couldn't, you know, she was very Americanized. She couldn't speak Spanish. Um, after, you know, after dark, all the um, social services are closed. She was hit up to enter prostitution rings left and right. Um, a police officer tried to rape her. Um, this is all the first night. And, and she's uh, 17, 18 years old. I mean, she's, she's really a kid. Um, after three days, at one point, she no longer had any, I mean, she, she left with only the money in her pocket. So she didn't really have anything. Um, by the third day, um, a man tried to stab her, so she ran down the, uh, the aisles of the cars at the U.S. border and asked for asylum um, because her life wasn't threatened. Um, instead, they put her in jail for entering the country a second time, where she spent a couple of years. Uh, she finally was released when she's like 21 or 22. You know, her, her youth spent behind bars, and she was only released on probation. The, and she's um, waiting to find out if she can stay. 
uh, with the new administration, that seems very doubtful, which means that she could be deported again at any moment. Um, again, brilliant young woman, and, and, this is, and like her, you can multiply that by thousands and thousands and thousands of young people, old people, women, children. So, so when we say it breaks lives, it's destroying youth of a future. Yeah, let's, let's break this down with the usage of this term illegal, which you declare it's not a neutral word. So just point out the ways in which uh, this biased word creates a harmful framework before we dive into the immigration conversation. Um, hmm. And just describe the history where the bias of past Americans and positions of power made their worldview the legitimate norm and why we shouldn't use that word anymore. Okay. So, first of all, no human being is illegal. We are undocumented. If you were to leave the house today and left your wallet behind and you get stopped by the cops for driving without a license, in other words, you don't have your proper documentation, you are not an illegal driver. You're just a driver that doesn't have the right documentations. Um, it's the same thing. The not having proper documentation in this country um, is it's kind of like a misdemeanor. I asked a district attorney in Phoenix once, can they give me an example of what a documented American would face, you know, would be similar. And what she said was, it's the same as shoving somebody in a federal park. It's the same level of, 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 a, of a misdemeanor of a crime. But by using a loaded word like illegal, it brings to mind that these are people who are thieves and robbers and rapists, something that our president has used to describe um, the undocumented. So to engage in this language, which the New York Times does as well, I mean, it's not just racists that are using it, even legitimate news sources are using it, um, reinforces this idea that these people are somehow dangerous. When every statistic we have read, and even statistics done by the FBI show, that undocumented communities have less crime than individuals with proper documentation. Uh, you talk about the importance of asking the question, why are they here? They, meaning undocumented workers, Latino, Latinas, even though they have lived for hundreds of years on the land that would eventually become the United States, are seen as aliens. Many find themselves in the U.S. because of the quasi-religious ideology of manifest destiny when the United States conquered foreign lands, as in the case of northern Mexico and Puerto Rico. And secondly, the other real reason they keep coming is bananas. Tell us more about the repercussions of manifest destiny and bananas as a result of what is referred to as gunboat diplomacy, as in the case of people from Central America and the Caribbean. Americans first discovered bananas during the 1876 fair in Chicago, um, where they were sold for, I think, about a nickel, and there was just a little slice of a banana in a tinfoil and a toothpick. Um, and, and since then, Americans went bananas over bananas. They just loved it. Um, but the problem was there was no way of getting bananas to market without them spoiling and, and, and being overly ripe. Um, but um, a couple of individuals, um, Baker and Keith, began to figure out, you know, build faster ships that could get it at least to New Orleans and begin distribution there. 
when refrigeration was invented, then they could definitely bring bananas over. So at the beginning of the last century, um, they created a company known as the United Fruit Company. And the purpose of the company was to bring bananas to the state. But to do that, they needed land. Now, in Guatemala, there was a dictator by the name of, uh, there was a dictator who basically gave the United Fruit Company free reign to harvest the land in exchange for building ports. Fast forward to 1955. Um, by this time, um, indigenous people own less than 10% of the land, and the very rich, the 1%, own like 90% of the land, of which the United Fruit Company was a major owner of all this land. What ends up happening is that Abanez is elected as president of free and open election. But the United States has a problem with that, specifically the Dulles brothers. Dulles, one was the secretary of state, the other one was the head of the CIA. Before they worked for the Eisenhower administration, they both worked as attorneys for the United Fruit Company. So they went ahead and literally hired a PR company to say that the democratic election was a communist plot, and this was the second time that the CIA was engaged in overthrowing a democratically elected government. The first one was Iran, and we all know the repercussions that we're still facing because of that when they overthrew uh, the Shah. Um, the second country to be destabilized was Guatemala. What ended up happening was a 30-year civil war in where hundreds of thousands of people disappeared or was killed. Now, what's going on in Guatemala is going on through every other country in the Caribbean basin. We, we have to remember that in the last century, um, the United States uh, sent military forces, the Marines, to overthrow governments at least 52 times. Um, if not overthrow a government, um, at the same time, um, um, overthrow it through um, um, covert operations like the CIA. So that's like once every other year, we have overthrown a government in the Caribbean basin, destabilizing all these countries. So when I say we have to ask why we are here, um, I'll make it a little bit more personal. Why am I here? You know, I was born in Cuba. I was born... Um, you know, um, in 58, so I'm probably dating myself. By that time, the United States has invaded my, my country three times. Matter of fact, when we fought for our independence in 1895, the United States entered the war of, of our independence and changed it from the Cuban War for Independence to the Spanish-American War, a war now between empires. The end result was the Cuban flag, I mean, the Spanish flag, the flag of the empire, went down and the American flag went up, not the Cuban flag. In fact, no Cuban was allowed to enter the city of Santiago where the transfer of power occurred, uh, who fought in the war for independence. In order to get rid of the United States Army, the uh, Cuba government had to sign a document that basically said that the United States reserved the right to invade Cuba at any time uh, when Cubans were unable to govern themselves. It also said that they could take any piece of land they wanted for, for military purposes and Guantanamo Bay. But the most important thing is that, that by five to ten years after that War of Independence, the vast majority of the land in where we grew our major crop sugar was owned by U.S. companies. The railroad was owned by U.S. government uh, companies. 
the uh, ports were U.S. Uh, owned. Um, all the nickel that Cuba produced was owned and mined by U.S. company. 50% of all our oil was owned by U.S. company. The other 50% was owned by, um, by the British and, um, and the Dutch. So basically our entire economy became subservient to the United States. What occurred in the United States is until the beginning of the 1900s, they were more interested in acquiring and conquering for the purpose of having land. Since then, they became more interested in controlling economies. And Cuba was the first place where they experimented with this new way of doing colonialism. Now, I say all this to bring us back now to 58. The Castro Revolution was not really a communist revolution. I don't think he really understood Marx to begin with. But it was more a third world revolution against all these years of U.S. control, uh, more than anything else. Um, so, in a very real sense, um, we have to remember that, that uh, and until then, Cuba was exporting our sh- sugar and we were importing candy. We were exporting leather and importing shoes, exporting um, taba- uh, tobacco and importing cigarettes, um, exporting rum and importing drunk sailors. So, so in, in a very real way, our economy was totally controlled by the United States. So when I ask why am I here, I'm literally am following everything that has been stolen from my country. All the labor, all the natural resources that helped build this country came from Latin America. And not just Cuba, but like I said, every country on the Caribbean basin. That's why we're here. We're following what has been stolen from us. So when you come here, maybe we should be more accepting and loving and caring about what's going on. Well, I think when I come here, and and I think there's an important point, uh, many times Christians talk about hospitality. They say we need to show hospitality to these poor immigrants. But hospitality is probably the wrong word that we should be using because hospitality assumes that I own the house and I'm, so, I'm going to be hospitable and allow you to come into my house. But what I'm arguing is that we built the house. And we don't want hospitality. We want restitution. What do we owe Latin America for all we have stolen? Now, even before we get into gunboat diplomacy, which is what Theodore Roosevelt called this invading other countries and uh, establishing governments that are um, faithful to um, U.S. businesses, we have to also remember that the uh, um, Mexican-American War, when James Polk runs for president, he runs on a campaign promise that if he's elected, he will invade Mexico. He got elected, and true to his word, a month later, he invades Mexico. And the end result of that was the acquisition of northern Mexico, which really meant all the gold of California, all the silver of Nevada, all the copper of Arizona and New Mexico, all the oil of Texas, um, and all the rich minerals of where we're standing right now, Colorado. And it is those minimal resources that help fuel the industrial revolution of this country. Mexico is left with the worst land, the southern part of Mexico, uh, which, and, and, back, and only one hub, working harbor, Veracruz. So, again, we're not here because we're coming to steal um, your social services. We're not here um, looking for an opportunity. 
we're here following what has been stolen from the question so important. Because that's not the question, that's not the conversation we're having. No, not at all. I'll, I'll have to admit, and I apologize, I didn't get to read everything before tonight. But um, hearing this all for the first time, it's overwhelming. And it's, it's shameful that we could act like this. And here we are, we're going and we're going to do it some more. And I know Kyle always tells me about your theology of hopelessness, and now I'm understanding better where that paints a very bleak picture of the future and, and where we're headed. And, and, and the sad thing is, when a candidate runs for president and the first words out of his mouth is calling my people rapists and thieves and murderers and wins an election based on that blatant racism, how can I have hope that this country is going to do what the right thing? Okay, but, but how, how can we begin to unpack this for someone who maybe hasn't, doesn't have the background to begin to understand some of what you talked about? I mean, how, how can we change the dialogue, take it back into a place where it's not so much us versus them? How can we make it relatable to people so that, so that some of this can be unpacked and undone. You know, obviously Donald Trump doesn't control us unless we let him or, you know, other people, other rhetoric can't control the way we think about immigration or immigrants without, without our consent. And so, yeah, how do we, how do we start redirecting? Well, see, and, and, that, and that's where my hopelessness comes in. You're talking about a situation that begins in the 1830s and takes off in the 1900s in where all, uh, you know, most of the major corporations of this country were based on the rape of the resources of Latin America. To begin to even question that is to be labeled either as an angry Latino, of which I've been, asked, been told that I am, as uh, a communist, as a hater of America. And, and when you deal with that kind of rhetoric, there really is no place to begin a conversation. The most that I can do as an educator is try to raise consciousness by dwelling, by, by dwelling on the history of this country and how it relates to Latin America. But no matter what I say, all I need is a soundbite from Donald Trump to dismiss everything that I'm saying. You know, as people are screaming, build the wall, build it higher, who wants to hear me talk about United Fruit Company and, and, and you know, the, the adventures of Nicaragua and... You know, I mean, who's coming to, to the border? Mostly from Central America. People from Guatemala, which we just talked about, you know, and, and what we did there. And we, we, we fueled a 30-year civil war where hundreds of thousands of people died. And people coming from Honduras, another place that we have done horrific things, including medical experiments on the Honduran people by the U.S. military. So we don't even know this history. You know, why should we be surprised that these people are, are coming here, following those roads that we build into their country? So, so I hear what you're asking, you know, how do we begin the conversation? I have no idea how to begin this conversation because to begin the conversation, one needs to understand one's own history. And one thing that we are good at in this country is embracing an amnesia that allows us to forget. I mean, even when you have liberal politicians um, like Barack Obama, who I happen to have voted for, 
um, say things like, you know, uh, you know, the American history, our American history is one that we should be proud of. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, hold it. <laughs> because we're not willing to deal with our history. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff has happened in living history. People who are alive now remember these things happening. Mm-hmm. Not the 1830s, obviously, right. but the things happening in modern times, the, the Cuban Revolution and all of that. So I think a lot of people are probably, when they think of the immigrant issue in the United States, when I'm putting air quotes around that, they probably think of, as you say, people coming from Central America, but also people coming from Mexico. Um, I think that's that's where a lot of people's minds go. So can you talk a little bit about, about NAFTA and about the effects that NAFTA have had on the relations between U.S. and Mexico? And I can see how this is the threat of this is going to continue, but if you wouldn't mind elaborating on that. No, not at all. And, and again... It, when we look at this history, you know, one of the responses is, well, that was back then. We've learned our lesson. We don't do colon- colonialization anymore. NAFTA is a good example that that's not the case. So, so NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, is established in um, 1993. 93 or 94? I think 93. 93. And, and this was the brainchild of um, Ronald Reagan, which... Um, Clinton finally gets through Congress. NAFTA basically eliminates the tariff between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, allowing goods to flow freely between these countries. But it doesn't protect the rights of the workers. So, so two things are going on here. Number one, on the Mexican side, uh, they want to industrialize. They want to move farmers off their farms into factories. So they have an incentive to destroy the, the, our cultural culture so that they could become more modernized. On the U.S. side, businesses find f- cheap labor. But in the United States, uh, to work at a factory back in 1993 was, what, $20, $25 an hour? In Mexico, you get a worker for $5 a day. Okay. Um, now, when you say, well, there was a windfall, prices of, of goods dropped in the 1990s. Like you said, if those people who were around, there was no windfall to the consumer. So all that became profit to major corporations. Got to remember, in 1973, the average CEO was making, um, was making about 14 to 15 times the average assembly worker. Now, they're making like 500 times. So we know where that profit's going to. Putting that aside for a second. So let's look at one aspect of NAFTA, corn. Okay. Corn, according to some fossils, um, is believed to have first been domesticated in what we call today Central America. So it has been the crop for millenniums that feeds people. And corn is a, is a miracle crop. You could grow it in high altitude, low altitude, little rain, a lot of rain, uh, pretty much anywhere. You know, when the lost Columbus was discovered by the Indians, he took corn back to Europe with him. Now, this corn, um, again, Mexico was the birthplace, the cradle, Central America of, of, of corn production. Where NAFTA is passed, um, roughly 10 million farmers lose their farm within the first five years. Many of them corn farmers because they cannot compete against U.S. corn prices. U.S. corn prices are subsidized by the U.S. government. Mexico does not subsidize corn price, uh, the, the production of corn. Now, think also where are the major corn producers in the United States? Iowa, 
where is the first presidential prime uh, caucus held? Iowa. So no politician is going to say we need to cut these subsidies to Iowa. Um, so so there was an unfair advantage right there. When the farmers in Mexico lost their farms, they went up to the border to work in the maquiladoras. Those are U.S.-owned corporations on the southern side on the border, being paying people a substandard wage to make products that Americans were making. So as Americans were being kicked out of their factory jobs, um, basically we did not say, oh, we're kicking you out because the corporate CEO wants to make a greater profit and they want to go ahead and hire these Mexicans for a lot less. We said, oh, no, the Mexicans are taking your job. And therefore, we have someone new to blame. So the profits can cross the borders. The people cannot. People, their labor crosses the border. Bodies do not cross the border. Now, if only we would have known this, maybe we would not have this immigration crisis. But we did know this. A year before NAFTA was ratified, the um, GEO, the Government Accounting Office, GAO, I'm sorry, the, General, uh, the, the Government Accounting Office, um, studies NAFTA and basically said in their report that if NAFTA was ratified, we're going to have an immigration crisis. And that's exactly what happened. So we knew that that was going to happen. So how did we respond to that? We began Operation Gatekeeper. Operation Gatekeeper, before, when, when, when somebody crossed the border, um, it, it was a back-and-forth type thing. Nobody wanted to live here from Mexico. They basically came, did the harvest, went back home, and did their work. So if I had an apple farm in Washington, I would go ahead and advertise in the Mexican newspaper, meet me at the Catholic Church, there'll be a bus there, take them to Washington, and then they work their way back south with each harvest until they get back home, and then they do their own farming in their own community. When we militarized the border, when we closed off the border because of NAFTA, um, we basically made it impossible for people to cross in the major places where they used to cross, San Diego, El Paso, uh, Nogales, the major cities. And we pushed them into the desert. And here's the thing we need to realize. When we push them into the desert, we knew people were going to die. In fact, and in the, um, the head of um, the Border Patrol Agency at the time uh, wrote in a memo to Congress that what we're going to implement is a deterrent policy. And by deterrent, it meant we're going to make it so difficult for people to, to come into this country that it's going to deter them from coming. And deterrent meant that they were going to die in the desert, but that's okay because it would deter other people from crossing the desert. We have a U.S. policy based on the death of, of, of certain people of color to deter other people of color from doing the same thing. We haven't had that since the days of Jim and Jane Crow in this country. Every four days, five brown bodies perish in the desert. And, and no one's speaking about this silent genocide that's going on right now. So this is the fruits of NAFTA. Um, and I'm just looking at corn. I mean, we could, we could look at many other industries. And I'm, I'm sorry I'm giving such long answers, but these are really complex issues that um, the sound bites on the evening news just misses. I think the... Um what you're talking about is continuing. I mean, with, with 
what we saw last week, um, even with no more deaths and the ways in which the Border Patrol has kind of come in and tried to make that situation impossible for people to get access to drinking water and uh, to be able to recuperate from the heat and things like that. Um, and like what you're saying, I think is, is continuing to this day. It's not like it's something in the past that we can reflect on, but I think you're, you're right to say that um, it's something that is, that's current and ongoing. And um, I think the, the question that I have is how do we, respond to that. Um, and I know that you talked a little bit about um, John's letter to the church of uh, Laodicea, where God spews um, the lukewarm church out of God's mouth. And can you talk a little bit about how you're equating um, in, in that article, the first century Christian community uh, with the 21st century context of immigration issues and policies that we see today, um, and the ways in which the church has kind of failed to respond in an appropriate way to this issue at large. So there's a lot there to unpack. Um, you mentioned the um, the Border Patrol um, <clears throat> um, entering into No More Deaths camp. Um, the first time the Border Patrol ever did that, I was at the camp um, a few years back, um, and they they held us for a couple of hours trying to determine what to do with us, if they're going to arrest us or not arrest us. Um, and at the time, I kind of explained to them that arresting 11 or 12 future priests, they, they really didn't know what a seminarian was, but they understood the word priest, um, would, would probably not work, would be good PR, and they let us all go. Uh, but before they let us go, they took all my information. And from that year until this year, I have been audited by the IRS every single year. So there's, gonna, there's a price to be paid, no doubt about it. Now, now saying that, and that's just an, a, a personal note, um, you know, I know, I know most of the folks that know more deaf, um, and they're going to continue doing what they're doing because their mission is to save lives. Um, at No More Deaf, basically, um, we never ask people for the documentation. If someone's in need of medical attention, we provide medical attention. We do not transport them. We do not help them enter the country. We do not take them anywhere. We just provide medical attention. That's all. Um, so to invade the camp really is a violation of us as Christian living up to our Christian responsibility of taking care, like the Good Samaritan did, of the person beaten and dying by the side of the road. The invasion of the camp, of the normal death camp, prevents me from living the duties and responsibilities that I believe Christ has called me to live which is to help people in need. You know, as long as I don't transport anybody, which we do not do, and we make that very clear. Um, no more deaths know that we're there. It's not like we're hiding. Uh, we have a first aid medical triage camp, uh, so they know we're there. And there's always been an agreement since that time that I was there and they uh, entered the camp that they would not do that anymore. And obviously, under the new administration, they have broken that agreement that they made with us. Not a written agreement, but just a verbal agreement they made with, with us back then. So, what do we do as a church? Now, there are churches who are engaged in the sanctuary movement, and, and, and not that many churches, unfortunately. Uh, the sanctuary movement grows out of the 1980s movement when uh, there were deaf squads in Latin America sponsored by U.S. government under the Reagan administration. 
and the churches stood up against the U.S. government and started taking in these refugees, that they would live in the church, they were given sanctuary in the church. One of the major individuals who began that movement, John Fife, is also the individual who is one of the founders of the No More Deaf camps that we're talking about. Um, basically, John Fife was convicted as a felon, along with several, seven other individuals. Um, but to their credit, not one person who entered into sanctuary was ever deported. Because I asked John, you know, wasn't this a failure? Because at the end, you know, he goes, no, that wasn't a failure. We never lost one person who took sanctuary throughout the United States. Now in Arizona, colleges became sanctuary colleges. Um, states became sanctuary states. We began to revise this idea of sanctuary again. Um, and the idea is it's based on the um, U.S. versus Goering in the Nuremberg trial, which says that individuals have the responsibility to provide humanitarian aid to people being persecuted by their governments. And we believe that these individuals are being killed by our government, so we have a right, an international right, a human right, to provide medical aid to people who are dying, even though our government says we cannot do that. So when you tell me what should the church do, the church should be in the front line of this. Every single church should house an undocumented family. I mean, the Pope even said this. The Pope said at one, at one of his sermons that churches that are not taking in refugees should become museums. And I think he's absolutely right. Um, it is the responsibility of the church to be at the forefront of this battle. But churches are more concerned about losing their tax exemption than following the gospel message of providing life to those who are dying. Um, and, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm you know, I, I always say the church is just asleep in the light. It, it just is not doing what it's been called to do. And if churches, if Christians actually begin to demand these things from their government, change could occur. But unfortunately, so many of the church has been hijacked with political rhetoric that somehow we're supposed to obey laws that are designed to bring death to people. So if there are laws in place, which there are, that strip human beings from their dignity, what you would say, they're this God-given image, you know, this Imago Dei, that we're all made in God's image, we should, as Christians, professed Christians, break the law. Absolutely. Um, you know, I have come to give life and give life abundantly. Anything that does not provide life and life abundantly is satanic. And I have been called to fight the forces of Satan, the forces of evil. And to do that, I have to break the law. It's the only way when laws are not. Now, now and, I, and I need to be careful. I mean, I'm not saying I need to go out there and break a law. Uh, because, you know, it needs to be a community, it needs to come together, and as a community, as a faith community, they have to say this particular law is a, is a law that brings death. So when the church gets together collectively, there are rippling effects, and there have been throughout history. We often just forget that. We lose our cajones. We, we forget that we are 
sons of light, daughters of light, city on a hill, that there's something that should move us together in this, in this world, but yet we get trapped in the ways of the world, the ways of Rome. Going back to even thinking about reading Romans as resistance from a few podcasts ago, that idea is still lingering that the early church, they were insurrectionists and renegades and rebels and so, yeah, so thinking, thinking about um, this idea of collective resistance and a community that embodies um, life-giving possibilities and things like that. Um, I grew up in the rural South where the rhetoric around immigration issues was, uh, they're taking our jobs, um, they're, they're stealing our land. I mean, like it was, it was stretched then. Um, but it seems like the church, the church that I grew up in and, and grew, grew up around in the rural South, clung really tightly to these kind of politicized arguments that um, kind of bifurcated communities and, and really disrupted unity um, across lines of difference and across um, any sort of boundary that um, could have been mended or, or relationships could have been built. And it really restricted uh, the possibility of solidarity and things like that. And I know having taken classes from you that you've been influenced by um, movements like the Rainbow Coalition and stuff like that. And I, and I believe Chicago, I think it was. And can you talk about the importance of sort of broad-based coalitions and the importance of, of reaching across boundaries and, and finding solidarity um, and commonality amongst w- whether it be working class solidarity or whatever it may be, and, and how that might relate to the church's response to um, these sorts of problems? One of the most effective tools used by those in power is to create division among groups that really have more in common than not. The same forces that benefit from colonialism, the same forces that benefit from racism, from misogyny, from heterosexism, they're all the same forces. But the individuals who suffer under these very different categories seldom speak to each other, seldom come together, um, and, and seldom trust each other. Black Lives Matter folk need to be in the desert, and Hispanics need to be marching in Ferguson. Um, not because it's my issue, but because it's an issue that brings death to people. You know, one of the things that, that, I, that I always say, um, that, that I did, well, I haven't done it in a while, but back in the, in, in the late 90s, early zeros, what do you call the zeros of the, the early part of the century, um, you know, I was very active in the human rights campaign. Um, I'm not gay. I don't know anybody in my family who's gay, but I did it because it was a justice issue. No other reason. That was it. Um, I really believe every individual must be in an issue, involved in an issue that touches their skin, in an issue that has absolutely nothing to do with them, to build these types of coalitions. See, when I talk about immigration, I am immediately dismissed as an angry Latino. Immediately. When a white person talks about immigration, who can't even remember where their Im- immigrant parents, you know, you know ancestors came from, um, they don't have a dog in that fight. So why are they interested in this issue? And it's because it's a justice issue. I really believe that we as a community, and, and I'm talking as, as, as the total community of, of, 
of, of believers in Christ or believers in Allah or believers in humanism, I could care less. When we come together and work on issues that are important to us, but issues that have nothing to do with us, we can begin to build those type of coalitions that could bring about change. But as long as we remain separate in our own little cul-de-sacs, we're easily picked off. And I remember an article that you wrote about two months ago, and I reposted it, and I got some flack for it, and it was about the, the Muslim ban. Well, it wasn't a Muslim ban, but whatever ban that was, according to whoever you're talking to. And you had said, in solidarity, obviously as a Christian, you're not a Muslim, but that you would switch your title from Christian to Muslim if there was a, if there was a ban, if, if these people were no longer allowed in our country. And I was like, hell yeah. That's, I mean, I, was, I reposted it, and I had a bunch of Christians who, they didn't like that. They said, oh, you're, you're you know, because once you've taken your Christianity away, then you're, you're no longer a Christian. I go, you're talking semantics, because Christ is one who is in solidarity with the other. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we can look at the entire gospel narrative, all four gospels, and see that. I cannot imagine a person can even be a Christian if Muslims are being persecuted and does not stand as a Muslim beside their Muslims, brothers and sisters. It, it denies what Christianity is all about. And I know that sounds like a paradox, but then again, Christianity is a paradox. Um, I know it's contradictory, but then again, Christianity is contradictory. And that's the beauty of the faith. Um, and, and so, so yeah, no, in that arc, I remember I, I've, I had a few people also have raised eyebrows, but I had a lot of Muslims who reached out to me, um, and we began great dialogues. And I think that helps moving humanity forward. I think, um, for me coming from kind of the evangelical tradition and trying to still interact with it, even though I don't identify there. I get really frustrated when people are willing to hurt other people over abortion, over uh, humans that aren't here yet, that at some stages aren't even human yet. And yet when we talk to them about these kinds of issues, they don't want anything to do with it and they don't think they're responsible for it at all. Do you, do you know where that comes from? Is it just, is it just that it's easy or... <laughs> Because they think they're doing justice, but they don't care about the thousands of children that are up for adoption. They don't care about black oppression in urban centers. Like, I just am, I'm at a state in my life right now where I'm really confused about like how this works logically, that you can care so much about something yet that's not yet in existence, but yet you can ignore all these other things and all these other people and all these other situations where it's, it's so right in front of us. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting, you mentioned the abortion issue. When that first came out, evangelicals could care less. They were not involved in the abortion issue because that was a Catholic thing. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to be connected with the Catholics. Yeah, because they're not Christians. Right, because they're not Christians. So why should, <laughs> we, why should we care? You know, But abortion became a, a, an issue that could bring people together and create a political movement, which Farwell masterfully um, did. Um, so, so these type of political manipulations have always been going on. So now several generations later, it's a knee-jerk reaction to a lot of this stuff. And, and we're dealing with a conditioning that has now gone on for decades. Um, how does one break through that? I don't know. 
um, again, my job is to raise consciousness, to try to explain, to try to understand the history of why we have some of these issues. Um, sometimes it works, many times it just does not. And again, this is where this hopelessness comes from, because mm-hmm. I don't see any resolution in my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just veering off a little bit, um, as a, a white privileged feminist, female, um, so can you talk a little bit more about how we navigate being involved in justice issues? And I ask this because um, even within the feminist circle, the way that I read and what I read and hear and understand, like in many ways, I'm not welcome. I would actually really love to go on and study more of this and become more involved. But a lot of the voices that I hear say, we really don't want you because you're just, you're living high above everything else. And, and I'm not personally, that is not my gig. But it, then it, they say, well, but you need to be at every, every rally. You need to be at every um, objection. You need to show up every single time. And I'm like, I, I can't. I would love to, but I, I can't do everything. Like, I know that about myself from living life. And so, I, can you maybe, maybe what I'm asking is, can you talk a little bit about what activism looks like and how you stay healthy in the middle of that and how we, how we partner with people that are different than us or are frustrated with who we are um, and, and be able to come alongside them in ways that will make a difference? You ask a good question because. One of the best way to prevent activism from happening is, number one, not to pay people enough money so they have to have two or three jobs mm-hmm. and they don't have time for activism. Yeah. So, and I saw this really play out in Mexico and where um, people had to work two, three, four jobs. And when you say, we need to get together and march, and it's like, this is the first night I'm home, I need to get some sleep. Mm-hmm. Um the other thing that I found in Mexico, which is interesting, which I see happening here, but, is that they allow you to steal electricity. If you have a HUD, if you have, a, you, you could go to the May power line and hook up there, and, and the cops won't, nobody will bother you. And the reason being, you could get to watch TV. And if you're watching TV, you're being entertained, and you don't have time, or you don't make the time for activism. Now, we don't have to steal electricity, but between, you know, game, you know, computer gaming and television program and reality TV, there isn't this desire to go out and and march or protest or do any of that stuff. So we also have been sucked into that. Um, for me, the reason I am active is because I really have no choice because that's what defines my Christianity. Um, like I'm sure it does with you all, because that's why you're here uh, having this conversation. Um, now, I also realize that I cannot solve all the world's problems. I'm not the savior. Um, I could only work on, like I said, I only work on two issues at a time. And it's for, it happens to be immigration right now. And I'm moving now more and more towards issues of climate. Um, so those are the issues I'm working on. And, 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 they always change, I mean, with, with time. And, and I work with groups that, number one, welcome me and, and want me to be part of the conversation. And, and there's plenty of need for volunteers. There's plenty of need for, for individuals. And, and also, I'm, I have to be sensitive that at times, it's best that I'm not involved. You know, for example, when I worked with the Human Rights Campaign many years back, I always made it clear 
that um, you know, if they found another Latino who is gay, by all means, I'll step out. That's not a problem. Um, but they liked me because I was a Southern Baptist, and they really could use that a lot in talking to evangelical groups about LGBT civil rights. Um, and that's cool. And and many times I excuse myself from meetings because I didn't need to be there. So someone needs to be sensitive. I know as a Latino man working in Hispanic groups, we strongly need our white allies. But sometimes we just need to be left alone. Um, and, and we want our white allies to, 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 to be in solidarity with us, not to talk for us. In other words, not to tell them what it means to be an undocumented country because our white allies have no idea, but to be able to talk about how they are privileged by having us in this country. When I worked with the Human Rights Campaign, I never spoke about what it means to be gay in America because I have no idea. I never will. But I could speak about how heterosexism benefited me and how I was privileged by anti-LGBTQI laws. That I could talk with integrity. So what I want my white allies to do um, is definitely get involved with immigration issues, but don't talk for me. Talk about how you are privileged by having me and under other undocuments in this country. Um, and also, I, I, I encourage you, I, I, you know, anybody who's listening to this, I, I double-dog dare you, come down to the border. Come down to no more deaf. Spend a couple a week in the camp putting out water and food to people who are crossing the desert. Um, it, it would radicalize you. It would revolutionize your thinking. Always looking for volunteers down there. Um, so there's, there's a lot that can be done. Thank you. So I work in healthcare, and we need nurses at No More Deaf. <laughs> um, I'm actually a physician, so oh, I'm sorry, we need doctors more than <laughs> anything at No More Deafs. Um, but I, I'm curious to know how we can do a better job here in the states caring for um, our refugees and caring for um, patients that come here seeking um, seeking care and seeking sometimes better care. Any solutions or any No, I have ideas. no solutions. I have more <laughs> questions. And, and, and here's what's making it difficult. I'm afraid, if, if I was undocumented, I would be afraid to go to a hospital for mm -hmm. any kind of medical issue. So, or, or if I have, have kids who are ill, I'll be afraid to bring them to the hospital yeah. for any medical issues. Not because you would do anything, but because I don't know what, what, what the hospital administration will do. I don't know if they'll call somebody on me. So I work for the Safety Net Hospital here okay. in Denver, and we see a lot of patients that are come late, or we say present late to care because of that very reason, mm -hmm. um, and or um, you know don't get the care or the treatments that they need, intervene sooner, um, and so often we're seeing them on their deathbed, mm -hmm. um, and the hospital is their their last stop. So it's um, very unfortunate and heartbreaking um, taking care of these patients. So, And, and this is why I'm saying that this, the immigration policies are breaking lives. Yeah. It's destroying and killing people. And this is why it's so immoral. I mean, when I, I, I you know, in, in most other countries and in pretty much every other country, if you're undocumented, they just record you as being undocumented. You could still go to a hospital if you're sick. You could still send your kids to school. 
I mean, this is the only country that criminalizes unlawful entry into a country, into the country, and, and, and criminalize it to up to twenty years in prison. No other country does that, but we do that because by putting people in prison, GEO and uh, Correction Corporation of America makes a lot of money. And those two corporations that were going bankrupt before um, Operation Gatekeeper went into effect uh, now sends a lot of donations to candidates who are running for office, and they help write. They help write. They they basically wrote the anti-immigration legislation in in Georgia. Um, so we want to put people in prison because that's good for corporate uh, profits. So, so I mean, it, it's this, this is why I'm so hopeless because to 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 fix immigration would mean those two corporations will go bankrupt. So, <laughs> but so many people are making so much money off of uh, off of this immigration situation, which no other country does. So, yeah, I mean, first of all, thing I mean, I'm I'm, I'm glad that at least there's a, a place some people could go to for healthcare. But how do people know about it? How do we inform them? How do we get the information out to them? And how do we convince them it's a safe space to come? And even though it may be a safe space to come, if the Border Patrol you know, decides to come down on it, they could just station themselves outside and just catch people as they walk out. It, it, it really is a tragedy what we're doing. Trying not to explode over here. So <laughs> <laughs> a, a hope in the hopelessness. Well, again, if we're hopeless then, that allows us to become very radical in our response. So, so I'll give you a few examples. Um, no More Death, John 5. Um, I, I just finished a book which comes out in November, I think. Um, it's called Embracing the Hopelessness. It really deals with that. And John 5 was one of my conversation partners in the last chapter where we talked specifically about immigration. And he was saying that um, the first time I talked about this and talked about Nessex Badahoded was at No More Deaths. It is there that these ideas began to percolate and began to take form. And what he says is that a lot of the volunteers have embraced this. So they have, uh, doing one of the um, trials to convict, is cooperation streamline, where you literally convict 50 people of, of, of undocumented um, entry to this country um, within like a one-hour period, you know, like, 10, you know, 10 to 15 seconds per person to convict them. Whole trial, convicted, and they go to jail for 30 days. Therefore, the state has to pay the private prisons for these 30 days in jail. So during the process, um, one minister stood up and started praying, asking for forgiveness for what we're doing. And then he gets dragged out, and then a female um, rabbi stands up and prays, and then she gets dragged out, and then you know, a Muslim iman stands up and praying. He gets dragged down, and then somebody, you know, a Presbyterian stands up, and, and they just kept doing this uh, and shut down the procedures. That's Jodiendo. I mean, I, I'm not inventing a term. This is what Christians have done for centuries. They have stood up and said, this is against the will of God. You know, but they do it because they have no, you know, they have no other choice. You know, you, you try to play by the rules, but when the rules are written to bring death, you have no choice, I think, but to break those rules. 
you know, another thing that they did was they literally tied themselves to a bus carrying undocumented people that were about to be exp- um, deported. You know, brought a lot of media attention. And those are ways of raising consciousness. So, yes, I mean, <clears throat> this is what the church needs to be doing. These were all good church folks. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing Christianity back to its roots in the 21st century. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that people are listening right now that, that they're being challenged, that, that it's messing with their system and their head and their framework. So um, as we end tonight, where can people find you? Are you on, you're on Facebook? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Instagram? Are you have um, a website? <laughs> yes, to everything. Okay. Um, I do have a website. I mean, if you just Google my name, Miguel Dottore, you'll have a whole bunch of stuff pop up. Pop we'll, out. we'll link it in the show notes okay, too. Yeah. So yeah, I have a website. I have a Twitter account. Um, those things, I write a, a blog. And I'm, I'm hoping, uh, I, I'm, I'm right now finishing some negotiation, I might begin a, uh, a YouTube channel uh, next month. So we'll see how that goes. I think Kyle should have you on his <laughs> channel as well. <laughs> you guys would be a great conversation <laughs> partner. Definitely. Now, uh, also, light note, because, you know, Americans, we like to numb our mind at the end of the night, turn on the tube. Do you, do you watch House of Cards? What do you watch at night? Do you watch any <laughs> show that kind of makes you, like, breathe a little bit? Although that show probably doesn't make you breathe. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I try to relax by watching some TV show that really doesn't make me think deeply, like House of Cards, Game of Thrones, that's a um, good one. The new black. All good. Um, I mean, those are the things that I that that, that I follow. Um, and and of course, the the two shows that I watch to really just unwind is The Simpsons for the last twenty mm. some odd years, and um, and um, John Oliver uh, as well in his uh, weekend update. I love John Oliver because it's <laughs> it, you know it's depressing as it is to watch the news, but then he makes it at least laughable. Yeah. And what are you reading right now? What am I reading I mean, right now? Only two books? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly right now am engaged in reading the complete works of Jose Mati, which is like 26 volumes, roughly. I, I'm not going to be able to read it, but I'm, I'm attempting to get through it. Uh, you know, it's old Spanish writing from the, pa- from the turn of the 19th century, so it's very difficult reading. But it's, it's a project, it's a, it's a book that I'm working on that probably take a couple of years to to put together well thanks again for being on the show appreciate you and all your hard work oh thank you for having me cheers